0: Okay, it's recording. So, have uh, so, you
1: ever hit a deer or seen a, seen a deer that's dying?
0: Um hit a deer once. I didn't, I wasn't driving. Um, this was in college. Me and some fellas decided we we're gonna go, we we're gonna go to Cedar Rapids and go to like this the, the kind of rival colleges like homecoming dance for some reason, this was maybe sophomore year of college. And I guess it was fun. I don't remember really much about the actual event, but on the way home, we were excited to get back to the dorms where we would get some beer and then we would like really start drinking. And uh, we hit a deer, I forget who was driving. And it kind of smashed in in the front of the car and the deer was sort of on the side of the road and we didn't know what to do. The deer was still sort of alive. And um, somebody suggested that, well, why don't we, we'll call the, let's get back and uh, call the, we can call the police, tell them where we hit it. and That's the best we can do. And um, we had this, you know, we had some beer So we still like went and enacted the plan. But what I remember is like, we went back to, I think it was Cole's dorm room and we were just all kind of like bummed out. I mean, nobody said anything, but it like, it wasn't like the party was over. The party ended when we hit the deer, you know? Um, And I just remember it just sort of being like, maybe like everybody just had like one and then everyone just just left and and went to bed. (laughs)
1: Peace out. It's yeah. it's not it's not a happy time.
0: Yeah, you know, it's not dear. a happy time.
1: Although it brings to mind another story that one of my brothers told about hanging out um very very near where we grew up. There's some friends of theirs who live, you know, out in the country there and they were hanging out and at this person's place very late at night. And this it's not a house, it's like a big garage or something, like some kind of garagey building where they hang out and have couches and stuff and it was like two or three in the morning and somebody was like let's go get a deer and so they just like got on an atv or something and went out in the woods and shot a deer and brought it back wow. and ate it yeah i mean this is the story as i remember it i'm not saying this really happened but i remember being wow. told this story and yeah so there's a case where. <laughs> The deer kind of makes the party instead of breaking the party up, you
0: know. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, a deer can start a party or end a party, you know. (laughs) They're powerful.
1: This is If You See a Deer, I'm Erica Hauser. So far in this podcast, we've talked about some of the ways that humans and deer have related to each other over time. From ancient stories and myths to our contemporary relationship, which often means being neighbors, dealing with problems, and getting in each other's way. In this episode, Craving, Tyler Carter and I begin to dive into some of the more physical parts of that relationship where it goes beyond just looking. That includes hunting and taxidermy, and also some more unusual practices. First, we're going to meet Dale Wenger, who appears briefly in my book, The Age of Deer. I first met Dale when I went to a hunting expo near where I live in Virginia. I felt pretty out of place at that event, and chatting with Dale came as a relief. He was there as a judge in a big buck contest, where people bring in the mounted heads of deer they've hunted and see whose is the biggest. Dale is a professional taxidermist. Tyler and I wanted to talk to him to find out more about taxidermy and to help us think about the culture of trophy hunting. We arranged a visit to Dale's shop in rural Elton, Virginia, which looks very unassuming from the outside. <laughs> but when we walked in, Dale escorted
2: us to his showroom. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my go- oh, my oh my goodness. Oh my goodness.
0: You have a whole
1: showroom. Yeah. I didn't
2: realize that. Kind of junky right at this point, but.
1: <laughs> the room has a nice hardwood floor and red carpet on the walls to show off all the mounts.
2: Each of, each of these animals in here has has a has a special place to me because there is a there's a story that goes behind each one
1: He's been at this since the late 70s running his own full-time business since 1992 and he told us he's mounted over 2000 deer They're the bread and butter of his business even though he's worked with tons of other animals too from bighorn sheep to bison
2: I've always been interested in nature and I've always been lucky enough to have a, a little bit of God-given artistic ability, and you kind of need that to, um, mm-hmm. to to you know, to make something look uh, like you want it to.
1: <laughs> Dale talked a lot about that artistic side of what he does. He says the greatest compliment he can get is when someone says the animal looks like it's breathing.
2: It looks like it's alive. It looks like it could just walk away or something and that's what you're that's what you're shooting for
1: we weren't surprised to hear this but when you stand back from it a little the question arises why do we want to do this why make a dead animal look alive he told us that for many of his clients the goal is to recreate what the animal looked like in the moment they first spotted it
2: so it had its head turned a certain way or something like that and that's part of memorializing the the uh, experience that they've had.
1: The interesting thing is that while a hunter will probably be gazing at the mounted trophy for years to come, the initial encounter with the animal when it was alive was likely very brief.
2: They see that animal sometimes 10 seconds mm-hmm. while it's alive, you know. Mm-hmm. And and then that's, that's the only time they've ever seen it. And mm-hmm. Most of the time they're not even looking at the Mm -hmm. facial features or anything, Mm -hmm. they're looking at the antlers to see if it's big enough that they want to shoot it, and then they're looking at where they want to hit, Mm -hmm. um, which is not the face.
1: After decades of experience, he's able to make a pickled deer skin into a very convincing facsimile of a lifelike deer. Interestingly, though, he doesn't claim that that mounted deer head will look exactly like the actual deer it came from.
2: I... I've done a couple pets and I've refused to do them because...
1: He's talking about his dog Poochie who who was lying on the couch at the time. That
2: dog right there, I can make it look like a dog. I can make it look like a dog but I know that dog. I mean this this is my best little buddy right here. Um, He's almost 14 years old and Mm -hmm. you know I know every little expression on his face and stuff. I cannot create that perfectly. Mm -hmm i would i would look at that and i would say that is not my dog Mm -hmm. that's a dog but that's not my dog
1: even the best taxidermy deer it seems in a sense is a generic idea of deer no longer itself For me, it raises questions about what exactly the relationship is between a hunter and the animal they kill. How does the hunter relate to that animal's life, to its body, to the memory of it as a living thing? I'm sure there's a different set of answers for every hunter. Dale talked about one client. He said he was a really good client because he brought Dale lots of projects and always gave him a tip, who tends to go hunting at high-fence ranches, which are private properties where deer with extra-large antlers and often exotic animals like blackbuck or oryx can be shot for a fee. This guy brought Dale 21 deer in a three-year period.
2: He does a bunch of different states, but he'll just, he'll go on a, a month-long trip and just go from one high fence place to the next and shoot deer, you know, and they're big. To him, I think it's more about the size and stuff because. Mm-hmm. Um, he, more
1: about the size versus like the memory
2: of. Yeah. Were talking yeah. About. Yeah. Because, you know, he kills seven in one year. He brings them to me. He comes and he's trying to remember. Let's see, which one was this one? Dale
1: says for him, his personal trophies are more like a photo album, but three-dimensional, like the deer his son shot when he was 11.
2: And he shot it with a muzzleloader. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, it was just me and him and the muzzleloader. And I, I thought the buck was bigger than anything I'd ever killed at the time. And
1: anyway, he says, somebody else will always have a bigger trophy.
2: Trophies don't mean quite so much to me as far as having to prove to other people how good I am. These are more about my memories.
1: For me, the most interesting part of Dale's Place wasn't the showroom, but the shop. I'm much more drawn to the projects that are half-finished, skins and antlers that are not pretending to be whole animals and not knowing anything about taxidermy, we wanted to hear from Dale about how it actually works. He explained that he uses pre-made molds of the entire head and neck, made out of a type of hard foam. Putting the deer's skin on those is kind of like dressing a mannequin in a store.
2: This, this is a deer. Okay, and um, you see it's much, much harder than great stuff. Mm-hmm. The great stuff is squishy, it's, it's okay. softer. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, I, I can cut it. Uh, I use auto body putty bondo oh. for, for glue. It, it's great, <laughs> great glue. Uh, you Even
1: can also... using those molds, many of the details still have to be custom created. Dale uses potter's clay to rebuild ear muscles and muscles on the top of the skull.
2: And then I use a, um, a special clay... They call it critter clay. It's made for the taxidermy industry.
1: And he puts in glass eyes that he says are as high quality as what a person with a missing eye would
2: use. Uh, here's a deer that's in, in process. I've got, got it put together all, but the, uh, now i got to put the antlers in here.
1: I was amazed when he turned a skin inside out and then back again, fascinated by the eye and nostril holes. This part of a real animal was right there in front of us, surrounded by the cheerful mess of the shop, with tools everywhere, containers of special glues, an air compressor, a sawzall.
2: A staple gun around the back. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: All kinds of drills, drum all. Uh, use the drum to uh, go up into the, into the nostril and get the in, inner detail you can see.
1: And there were probably half a dozen deer heads in progress, up on stands, as well as a table full of antlers. To me, it looked like chaos, but Dale knew each deer head individually.
2: This one right here is the one I was telling you about that I had to cut the neck and make it neck bigger and make the head smaller. Mm. Oh. So you'd huh. never know it looking at it now, would you? <laughs> oh. Oh.
1: Dale has a relationship to each deer body that nobody else has. In a strange way, he's a bit like a midwife. He's midwifing the hunter's memory into being, and he has technical knowledge about the mechanics of those bodies that allows and protects a relationship between two other beings. His work happens somewhere in the space between past and present, between the memory of a living animal and a desire for some things never to change or break down. The summer before we visited Dale, I'd gone to North Carolina for a primitive skills gathering. That's basically a big campout with hundreds of people and a full schedule of workshops where you can learn the kinds of skills humans once needed to survive before any sort of industrialization and even before agriculture, like how to make fire, how to gather wild plants for food, and how to make things you need out of animal parts. That's why I was there, to focus on deer parts. The first workshop I took was about making tools out of deer bones, and the instructor was a guy named Josh Barnwell. I wrote in my book about his class, which I loved, but I hadn't gotten to talk to him much. I just knew that he uses deer parts for a lot of different purposes, and we wanted to hear more about how deer fit into his life. When we talked, he was wearing a vest he'd made, completely out of deer parts. He brain-tanned the buckskin, sewed it together with more buckskin and with sinew from the deer, and made buttons out of antlers. If you follow Josh online, you'll see all kinds of things he makes. Rawhide boxes, sinew cordage, hoof spoons, even glue made from hides. He turns deer bones into hair ornaments and neckerchief slides that he carves and decorates. All of these projects entail their own way of being familiar with the bodies of deer, like the way he knows to stretch rawhide strips while they dry so that they won't become loose after they've been used to sew a seam. And a lot of these objects are things you'd wear on your own body or use as tools, not things that would just sit on a shelf. He's been working on learning how to do these things since he was really young, growing up in Tennessee.
4: My dad's a hunter and a chef, you know, some of my earliest memories are watching him like butcher squirrels in the living room, you know, got newspaper down. And uh, when we lived in Kansas, when I was about five, we got to stay up extra late so that he could bring the deer home and we could watch him, you know, take it apart and fill the freezer. And
1: At seven years old, Josh was interested in how he could use wild plants for food and materials and as a homeschooled kid, he says he had lots of free time to read and practice skills like that. He figured someday he'd run away and live in the woods like the kid in my side of the mountain, and the more supplies he could make for himself, the less he'd need to buy. By the time he was 15, he was getting into not just plants, but animal parts, too.
4: I'd started apprenticing with a wood sculptor uh, who was close by. He lived uh, on a you know homestead that he built, and big garden and everything, and He would harvest a few deer every year to fill his freezer. About the age of 15, I was able to work with him and he guided me through butchering my first deer. And, you know, he was mostly interested in the meat, but I was really excited about, uh, learning how to brain tan at the time. So he gave me my first hide, my first deer brain, and so that was about 19 years ago that I tanned my first deer hide.
1: These days, Josh lives with his family in a farmhouse near Cookville, Tennessee, where he has a workshop and a bounty of resources from spring water to nut trees to a place where he gathers flint for more crafting. His calendar revolves around these skills and the materials that he needs for teaching workshops and making crafts, which he sells. When I took a class with him, for example, he brought enough deer leg bones for about eight of us to make awls with. That's a sharp tool you can use to punch holes in leather. The skills, the materials, and the seasons all seem to merge in his way of life.
4: So a lot of my life is directly correlated to what season it is. You know, not just for like what foods are coming up, but also like what crafts are are available to me. Through the fall, that tends to be my. Uh, animal processing season. It's when it starts to cool down and I'm a scavenger so I get most of the animals bodies that I work with from the side of the road. So I spend most of fall and winter doing that, focusing on getting getting materials for projects for later in the year like hide tanning, bone craft, also filling the freezer with meat and uh, preserving all the all the things that we get.
1: You can definitely think of Josh as a survivalist. He says people often tell him they're going to come live with him when the apocalypse comes. And you can think of him as a craftsman who knows a lot of really specialized skills. But I also started to think of him as someone who has a really unusual relationship to roadkill animals. Or as he calls them, car killed. These are bodies that nobody intentionally killed. They're accidents. They're mistakes. Josh told us about a deer he hit with his car when he was a teenager. Even then, he didn't respond to the animal the way most people do.
4: I was driving my 89 Honda Civic, going home from a friend's house. They lived uh, about 20 minutes outside of town, and I was in a little apartment right on the edge of town. And I was just driving home, and then out of nowhere, like, I hear a a wham, and, you know, I stopped the car. I thought I'd hit somebody's mailbox or something, and I I look back, and it was a doe. She was down in the ditch, so I, I... parked the car off the side of the road and I went to her and she was on, you know, laying there um, but still breathing and I didn't really, you know, I didn't really know what to do. And so um, I was able to just sit with her and pet her a little bit and just, um, you know, I didn't want to like add stress to her by being there, but she was, I think, beyond recognition of me. And so after about five minutes, I heard her final breath leave her body.
1: He still thinks about that and wishes he'd been able to take the deer home and make use of her body, but it didn't work out that way. Now he's more equipped for these situations, and he's actually known for picking up dead deer so people will call him when they spot one. He does what most of us would never want to do approaching the body, getting close to the animal, touching and smelling to see what kind of shape it's in.
4: I have like a, like an order of operations, you know, it's like, okay, is it fresh enough to use the meat? Great. We'll start with taking the meat and then, okay, the meat is gone green, like, but is the hide still good? And then if the hide's still not great or the hair is falling out or it's gotten stained with stomach juices, then. I can use the bones and the hooves for a lot.
1: He says the feeling most of us would have, this is gross, is not the biggest part of the equation for him.
4: There's always a sense of sorrow. and I've come to the point in my journey where death is sorrowful, and we, you know, I always try to acknowledge the weight that comes with working with, you know death, um, but also you can't have life
1: without death. As far as the gross part, it's mostly overruled by the practicalities.
4: You know, with having done this for so long, I like I sometimes I rely on other people to tell me if something is gross because I uh, I don't always realize (laughs) I am disconnected from a lot of the normal reaction. I don't just wrinkle my nose at every single animal body and, you know, it's at least worth stopping to check out and seeing what stage it's at. A lot of it I rely on my sense of smell and and just actually getting in there. And through experience, you know, there's all external factors like how fresh the eyes look, you know, if they're dry and cloudy and and have, you know, ants in them, it's probably been there for a while. You know, there's all these little signs that I've learned to look for to determine, you know, what I can utilize from this this animal body for my family.
1: This is so far from a sense of disgust or being repelled.
4: It's intimacy. I've gained an intimacy and familiarity with all stages from freshly killed all the way through the pile of goo I was talking about. And gaining that intimacy with these animal lives, I I can't help but feel like, you know, the more intimate you are with these things, the less you can take them for granted, you know. And and the more cause for celebration that having them in your life is.
1: The words life and death came up constantly as Josh talked.
4: Sometimes I say it's become my religion. You know, utilizing these animal bodies, but connecting to the animal life through its death. You know, you, you find these stories as you're working closely with the animal bodies. Like um, there will be scars that are left on the hide that will still be there after you tan the hide and, and make it soft. Like uh, every almost every deer that I've ever worked with, the hide has had um, they'll have these long, straight scratch marks down their back. These scars, and they're actually from where the deer will cross under barbed wire fences. And, you know these these stories of like these lives lived before they come to us, and then we're able to give new life to that through working with the bones, um, using the sinew, and, and just just fully integrating as much of those animals as we can into our, our daily lives is, uh, is almost spiritual for me.
1: Life and death as interdependent, mutually supporting, this is an old idea that's been connected to the practice of hunting for millennia. Josh usually plays the part of the scavenger, but nonetheless, we ended up talking about hunting and about trophies.
4: I'm open to hunting, and it's something that I eventually want to do. Um, but uh, it seems like every year that I gear up, and I'm like, you know what? This is the year I'm gonna I'm gonna go out, and I'm going to intentionally, you know, hunt for this year. You know, um, every single time that happens, uh, I end up getting a phone call or spotting a deer, and and it seems so, you know, why would I spend my time doing that if there's already so many deer that are just on the side of the road?
1: The connection Josh feels with deer, he calls it kinship, is something he sees among hunters too.
4: Most of the hunters that I talk to, that's the, that's really what they're looking for. That's, you know, I've, I'm sure there's, I know there's trophy hunters out there and, and, you know, they're, they're looking for big antlers and big story and, All of that but most of the hunters that i know and talk to what they get most excited about is just being out there and seeing the deer living their lives and bearing witness to that you know that's that's what's exciting and that's that's you know turkey season is coming up spring turkey and every turkey hunter you talk to is you know they have a story about you know and it comes full with movements and imitations Josh moves around like a turkey while he says and, this you know, as
1: though a turkey is a inhabiting his body to, and you know it's it's such a primal thing
4: to to get to directly witness these animals living their lives and to connect with them in that moment and then even being the death bringer there is a connection that happens you know and so with taxidermy yeah that is like holding that symbol and, you know, having that reminder on your wall. And a lot of that is kind of what I do, you know, maybe from a slightly different place, but the crafts that I make, I've been realizing more and more, the things that I get the most excited about creating are these powerful symbolic daily reminders.
1: And I'll I'll try again sometime.
0: Uh, okay. All right. Well. Uh, okay. I, I guess I mixed up my tool vocabulary. What is the scraper made out of bone? There's another. There's also a bone scraper too. Oh right? yeah,
1: yeah. So he was talking about. This is quite an interesting, like ripping sound. I feel like. <laughs> let's get, let's get that on tape. Here we yeah, go. I can do that again. I think I need to get like something loosened up. I can pull with my fingers. Oh, well, there was a little, a... a little rip. How about that one? Hmm. 101 things to do with a deer. Food, edible parts, muscles, flesh, organs, heart, liver, kidneys, brain, lungs, intestines as casings, miscellaneous, fat rendered to tallow, cracklings, Marrow, tongue, blood, cooking methods, stewing, baking, roasting, frying, preservation methods, freezing, canning, drying, jerky, salting, vinegaring, pemmican, pounded jerky with fat, Utility, usable parts, hair, for stuffing, pillows, mattresses, dolls, and toys, drum beaters, miscellaneous, for paintbrushes, garden mulch, insulation. Hide, rawhide, sleeping pad, hair on drums, rattles, containers, rope, par flesh, pounded, painted rawhide, bark tan, footwear, clothes, bags, belts, straps, brain tan, clothes, moccasins, Bags, shelter, blankets, diaper pads, menstrual pads, thongs, miscellaneous, hawk bags, hide glue, fat, rendered, lamps, candles, torches, skin salve, soap, Oiling and conditioning for hides, bone, and wood. Sinew, backstrap, cordage, sewing thread, bow strings, leg, bow backing, organs, tanning, brains, marrow, liver, stretches brains, miscellaneous, heart sac bag, bladder bag, intestine cordage, bones, tools, awls, knives, saws, hammers, hide scrapers, wedges, chisels, hoes, fire drill sockets, Needles, tool handles, weapons, daggers, arrowheads, fish hooks, gorges, miscellaneous, flutes, whistles, musical rasps, rings, pendants, beads, buttons, Game places, fuel, containers, antlers, tools, billets, tool handles, digging sticks, wedges, chisels, arrow shaft straighteners, miscellaneous door handles, buttons, beads, jewelry, hunting lore. Hooves and dew claws, rattles, jewelry, neat's foot oil, teeth, beads, eyeballs, pigment medium, blood, paint, packing dirt floors, scat, pitch glue agent, urine, hunting lore. Watch and enjoy them in their natural habitat.
0: It's about more than deer, though, right? It's about um, our relationship to, I don't know, I, I hate to say this, but nature.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, but yeah. isn't, isn't, well,
1: why do you hate to say that? Well, be... I, I have my own reasons for being like right. touchy about that word, yeah. but what,
3: why? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't really like to use that word nature. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, stuff, you and I probably have both read. I mean, I, I think it makes it seem like it's something that's out there, mm-hmm. you know, um, versus something that that I'm a part of that occurs because, um, not just because of it, but because of me, if it, maybe that's, I don't know. It, it always just seems like, um, when we think of nature, we think of like a, like a beautiful mountain some trees. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't seem like we're part of it,
1: you know. Like scenery. Scenery,
0: yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't even know what, what I would, what I would call it. I'm Mm -hmm. not even sure what it is, other than to say the the world, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. there's houses and trees and people and deer.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a, I mean, you can't talk about a relationship that we have with deer without then immediately starting to think about our relationship to the habitat the deer are in to name kind of one aspect of what you just said yeah you know like they have a whole bunch of other relationships to trees and acorns and bugs and Mm. they eat birds eggs sometimes out of the nest and you know they have a relationship to soil they create trails that are easily visible to us so they're embedded or completely embedded in a habitat like Mm. every creature is like we are yeah Um, so yeah to talk about our relationship to them it it doesn't stop with them it gets into how we've how we think about and how we've changed many other aspects of the world
3: Roadkill. Laid over with serpentine roads, the earth hums with combustion, machines swarm, the colony incessantly rows, locked into routines to work and back to the nest, headlights beaming. But watch out if you follow the herd or fly low, the road is a graveyard. See them flat or neck askew in a shroud of vultures returning to the sky. Especially when the leaves golden and the bucks lose their minds on the scent of the dough, you see them strewn and supine, kept cold on the approach of solstice. So like coyotes, we drag our haul and hoist the bodies in the back of the truck when there's a break in the traffic. The earth is made of food. We are one another's harvest. So take your knife and basket and gather on the low branch, the bramble, the roots and leaves of common weeds reel in from clear waters and roadsides where the freshly slaughtered just left out the pure woods and into metal like a bullet we bring the deer to the hilltop to gut for the eagles to lunch where the ancient blue mountains surround and watch opening the body you think on the self gone though the blood is still warm and you thank the deer and her kin for the body you live in and take limb by limb and tenderloin along the backbone, leaving the rest for the wilderness. Nature wastes not, and so, living by nature's law, we scavenge casualties of the Anthropocene, feasting but not having to kill, animal eating animal, our blood running together, wild and white-tailed.
1: interested in kind of traditional mythological view that really positions them and other animals as beings that could be related to the way we relate to each other as human. This kind of mythological plane on which beyond individual people and individual animals, they're sort of the people and the animals and they have this agreement between them that you know is thought to go back to the origins of humanity or people sort of came into the world and the animals were here first and the animals say okay we'll let these humans stay here and we'll provide various things for them with our our meat or our hides and we'll have this kind of etiquette between us.
5: When they arrived in the village, Wasaki Talk gathered everyone together. Everyone was supposed to look at him. Then Wasaki Talk turned into a deer. Wasaki Talk asked Touluns, "What is my name?" Touluns said, "Deer horns." Then worry was on everyone's faces. Touluns noticed this. Touluns tried again. "Your name is deer sinew." Someone said, Tulons can't remember the word." Touluns grew frightened and began calling out, "Deer eyes, deer voice, deer hooves." But none of these worked. Wasaki Tok then said, "I'm making it so you, two loons, are the only one who can call deer in close. So if you can't remember how to say deer, all the deer will be insulted and leave and there will be no deer to eat. Two loons flew back to the lake and Wasaki Tok followed. She dove in and swam on the lake a while. She flew out and landed back in the village. Soon after Wasaki Tak arrived. There two loons began to sing, you who stand sideways looking at us, you who flick your tail up, you whose fawn is covered with dew. Her song went on and it had many deer in it and the things you always see deer doing. The deer were listening. They heard that two loons knew many things about them and they were pleased at this. The deer walked into the village. They're giving themselves up, someone said. When this was said, many deer appeared next to the lake. Some were killed and stored for food, and some were eaten right away. Seeing the deer being killed frightened Wasaki Tok, so he changed back into his old self just in time. Tulun said, Yes, that must be Wasaki Tok, who remembered to change back in time. Ha, he is no longer a deer. There was much laughing. This laughing sent Wasaki Tuck out of the village. He went walking.
1: In our final episode, we're going to keep looking at the possibility of being with deer through a fairly unusual approach to hunting and what comes after hunting, through art, and through our own experience of spending time with part of a deer's body. You've been listening to If You See a Deer. This podcast is written and produced by Erica Hauser and Tyler Carter and edited by Tyler Carter.
0: Music is by John Galino, All My Heroes, and the Blue Dot Sessions. We also heard a song, There Was a Deer, by Eric Nowey.
1: Our guests were Dale Winger and Josh Barnwell.
0: We heard Misha Goldberg reading her poem, Roadkill.
1: The list of 101 things to do with a deer was read by me over music by John Galino, and it was written by Lynx Shepherd and published in 2000 in the Bulletin of Primitive Technology.
0: The story of Wasaki Talk was read by Elsie Galino and was published in Recovering the Word: Essays on Native American Literature, edited by Brian Swan and Arnold Krupat.
1: Big thanks to Mary Garner McGee at WTJU-FM in Charlottesville, Virginia, and to the Virginia Audio Collective.